0: Hi, this is Jean Nathan, and it is time for Crosstown Conversations, and um, it's also time for Women's History Month. And so uh, today and uh, every other show this month will be about um, women in all walks of life, Um, primarily in our city of New Orleans and um, or people who may have been living here and have gone elsewhere or um, have come from elsewhere but we're going to celebrate women and I think you'll enjoy um, both the interviews we have on today. Um, I am here with one of my favorite old, no I shouldn't say old, Um, (laughs) known for all time cohorts in um, Nightlife uh, in the city of New Orleans, which is a great lead in in a way to my question, which is kind of like a question I might normally put deeper into the interview, but I kind of want to just hit it. And that question is, how do you think your perspective as a musical performer in the city of New Orleans is different from that of performers in other places.
1: Wow. <laughs> I
2: told well, I, you. I mean, first of all, just being from New Orleans makes it different, yeah. you know, because, you know, people don't realize how much music comes out of New Orleans, you know, yeah. and how many musical families there are. Traditionally, so many, you know, and uh, it's something that's in the water, you know, uh, it's in the way that we walk, the way we talk, the way we stir our beans to the right and then to the left, and the rhythm that we have. So that's what makes us different from other musicians elsewhere. And plus, we're the best. I'm sorry, I have to say
0: that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but what what is it? Uh, what? How would you describe that a kind of visceral element in? The, that innate visceral element in your music, in your movement, in kind of your um, creative philosophical position that, well, again, how
2: is different from elsewhere. <laughs> well, it is. But I, I think that it's hard to really describe that because it's something that's in you that just exudes and comes out, you know, and it's not like you make it happen. It yeah. just happens, you know, yeah. and I can't really put a name on it or uh, tell you exactly where it comes from, except for it's something that God, it's a gift that he gives you and you just have to use that gift, you know? Okay. So I got the gift of actual music from, not just from my father, but from so many musicians in this city everybody that I can even start to name. And I'd be naming for about 10 years if I tried to name everybody that I got stuff from. But I think that each thing that i reached, that I got from every person became that one thing, you know, that made everything just go boom, you know.
0: So um, you mentioned your father. So I think it's important for us to establish in this interview for um, somebody who's been living on Mars that um, your dad is Charles Neville, who, uh, of all of the Neville's have, have had, I don't like saying had, um, a, a very um, uh, unique kind of philosophical bent, Yes. right? So my first exposure was probably to art, and not too long after that was Charles. And Charles was, I mean, you're, you're just talking about a high intelligence level as <laughs> yeah. well as um, a high creative level.
1: Right. And I
0: think the first time I met Charles was probably one of the first Dewdrop uh, yeah. performances. It probably that was.
2: Better, yes.
0: Right? <laughs> because I remember that he said that it was partially. Coming to those sessions, which were improvisational, based on the uh-huh. pattern that was established in the original Dewdrop Inn, we were just kind of
2: trying to revive that sense of. Yeah, it was called the Dewdrop Revisited, as a matter of fact. What we did,
0: yeah. So, so, so he he told me once that it was coming to those sessions that convinced him to come back home to New Orleans when he had been gone for a time. Right. And it was on the cusp of the Neville brothers coming together. And so that was a pretty amazing and important moment. And I just cannot believe it's not over. As my husband says, we're never gone. We're just invisible. So the music is still there. The spirit is
2: still there. You're still there. Ivan is there. And and my dad is still here. So, you know, and. Every time somebody talks to me about him and I see that little twinkle in their eye, I know that that's him saying, Look, I'm still here. You know, so, yeah, exactly. you know, I know that all of the things that he passed on, not just to me, but to everybody, you know, he was so phenomenal in what he did. And, you know, it was not just the music, it was about your thoughts and about you know, so many different things that you needed to be aware of, you know, because I mean, the improvisation was one part of it, but the, uh, the knowledge. And
0: he he on his um, saxophone was um, kind of the linchpin of the improvisational part of performances. I can't comment on the recording, but on the performances, um, it was he who took it out.
2: Yeah. And he would always say to me, you know, just do it. Don't think about it. Just do it. So, you know, and I tried to do that as much as I could because I knew where he was coming from and what he said, you know, but it was like just being able to get it out there. And there were times when he'd tell me, stop, (laughs) what are you doing? So, you know, because I wasn't going the right in the right direction of what he expected
0: so, so he would uh, he would
2: work with but you I mean, on the parameters of your work. Oh, yes. Right. He would always. You know. And we got to play, you know, different things all over this world. And how blessed am I to get the chance to have, I mean, I lived in New York with him for a little while. We played all the clubs that aren't there anymore. You know, That and it shocks me how many of the places aren't there anymore. But, you know. And not just in New York, but so many other places that the clubs are just gone, you know, and have become, you know, just like here in New Orleans too.
0: Yeah, I mean, clubs, it's a a weird thing, but there's a kind of wave of in and out with clubs. Mm And that was one of the reasons why we did that Dewdrop series at the CAC, because at the time, that I did that, which was 1979, I think it was either 78 or 79. I have to go look at my poster to be mm-hmm. sure. Uh, there had Rosie's had gone down. Right. Nog wasn't open yet. Um, I think the only place where we had kind of live funk or jazz was um, the hotel on Claiborne.
2: Oh yeah. Oh my it, goodness, that's right. I forgot about you know? that. So, good. so
0: there was like there was this moment when our clubs had gone down, and certainly all of the older clubs that were part of the birth of New Orleans music, including the original Dewdrop, were down. Right. So that was one of the yeah, reasons Conchettos why we did it. It and, wanted to. Oh my God,
2: the spark is yeah. back. Right. Yeah, but, I remember Conchetta South and uh, so and Jim's and. Uh, Oh my so, God. It was so Blue so, and Charlie's. Blue and Charlie's. Yeah, and, and Charlie's. Oh my goodness. How right. Did I forget that. And yeah. then also Fauberg's, because I played at Fauberg's and at Valentine's, and then it became later on Snug Harbor. So, you know, but uh, before it was Valentine's and it was, you know, Fauberg. So How there you was so many arrived? different. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. That's okay.
0: So how, how would you describe your work, your performances? I mean, I think of them as extremely exuberant um, and um, infectious uh, and definitely prevailing, again, that spirit of New Orleans
2: that we were talking about when we first started talking. Well, the only thing I would say about What I do when I get on stage is I love to have fun. And I feel like if you can't have fun, you gotta go home. And the fun always came from just looking out at the people in the crowd and deciding what would make them all smile or make them all cry or make them all dance, you know? It was always about that. It wasn't about me. It was always about the people that came. So, you know, I never knew what I was gonna, oh my God. <laughs> my band would have spontaneously combusted if I had ever given them a set list because I never could. I never could decide what I wanted to do until I felt what was coming from the people. So and I think that was the whole thing for me, was that everything's about fun. You know, yeah, that's about um, it. That's all I can say about describing anything.
0: Now, that's that's your music. Um, life, on the other hand, um, in the city that we love, that I think it, I've always credited art with the expression, the big easy, uh, but my, okay. my husband, Bob Tanner's answer to that is the little difficult.
2: Yeah, and you know, my, my answer to all of that is the biggest little neighborhood in the whole wide world.
1: Because mm-hmm. yeah.
2: that's who we are. You know, we're a big neighborhood, and we all know each other and we all play together, we all sing together, we all walk together, we all eat together, we all, you know, just everything, knowledge, you know. And uh, I, I don't know. I just feel like that's who we are, the biggest little neighborhood in the whole wide world. But Charmaine, you've had a pretty rough
0: ride from time oh. to time. So oh, yeah. I, I feel you focusing on the positive and um, I, I know that that again is at the heart of your music, just as you just said about your performance that you're, you're out there to have fun and make sure that the audience has fun and and, and enjoys and responds to and, and gets something from your performance but um, There have been some pretty uh,
2: rough moments in your life. Um, There was was a lot of them, a lot of them. But, you know, I think those rough moments are what made me who I am, you know, because I think without some pepper, you know, nothing really goes right. You know, there can't be just sugar. There has to be some spice, too. So, you know, I mean, there was lots of bad times. (laughs) You know, from the foster homes, the billions of foster homes that I was in, you know, the different abuse and mentally, physically and sexually, you know, from different foster families, you know, and but all of that made me know that I'm just one person and there are people out there who went through a whole lot worse than I did, but they managed to make it. So why shouldn't I be able to make it? you know? And, and my thing is, uh, what keeps me going now is I write stories, I'm doing all of these books for kids and, you know, my paintings, you know, my artwork and stuff and working on different projects that I volunteer in, like one that I'm volunteering for right now, the Prism project, you know, coming up with a bunch of kids that are Autistic, and, you know, I volunteer to work with kids who are artistic and teach them art and music and stuff, you know, yeah, so all of those things that happened to me made me able to be able to do what I'm doing now, which is just keep going forward, you know, not giving up, not stopping, because if I stop, I'm gone. And I can't just fly away like that, you know, no, so. Um, who else
0: in the pantheon of, of people, whether performers or people in the industry or educators, I find that when I talk to folks like you who are high achievers, and that's what I would put you in that category of high achievers, you all had somebody or somebodies who made a big difference in in, in kind of either promoting or informing or encouraging you. So who, what besides your father
2: and the brothers people. in general? Would well, you... they, there were a few people, you know, because I'll never forget the one thing that I, and people say, I can't remember that, that I was too young to remember that, but I do remember it. And I don't care what people say. And that was that, uh, Mahalia Jackson influenced hmm. you know, and uh, it was just such a, a great thing to even be in the presence of her, you know, and I didn't even know who she was because I was a kid. I was a baby almost, you know, and uh, years later, I became aware of how much she had influenced me because I would catch myself saying and doing certain things. And then I'd look back and i go, I know where I got that from. So she's just one of the people who really made me, you know, realize that I wanted to do more and wanted to be more, you know, and mm-hmm. try to strive at doing other things. So, you know, cause she wasn't just a great singer. She did so many different things that were fabulous. And like I said,
0: and that it sounds like I didn't know that you were doing all these other things—the writing and the painting, and the working with uh, children. So th- that again was something, in part, that um, she inspired. Is doing yes more definitely. than one discipline.
2: Uh, yeah, I think I got the art from my dad <laughs> <You> <laughs> because he was such a phenomenal artist, and. Uh, You know, I think that all came from him. But then I got a lot of stuff from my mother, too, because she was a singer, you know. And and I have to put also that my great uncle, Big Chief Jolly, he is another one who inspired me with so many different things, you know. And at the time, I didn't know really who he was, but we, we did stuff together later on in my life that let me really know who he was, you know? And the kind of person that he was the one who made now brothers come to a to and played together. And if it wasn't for him, his influence, it wouldn't have done those things together. But those aren't the only people that influenced me because Al Hurt as a child and Fats Domino for me as a child, they influenced me too, you know, just because I was just so, I was hungry, you know? And if you eat all of the stuff that people give you, it makes you blossom and become a little bit more, just a little bit extra, you know, a little lanyard. That's what it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I, 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 um,
0: I also want to understand um, how you have pivoted, as I say, during COVID and, and, and how you feel things are going to evolve coming out of it. And how do you see the future for you and for the, the music and art scene in the city? And finally, the, the closing question with that series is, um, what do you feel that musicians and artists in the city need the most to help them you know, have a little easier time. I, I don't know if gigs. you want. Your- <laughs> that's,
2: um, we all need gigs, okay. So that's the end of it. So, sure. but as far as gigs.
0: you need more exposure, don't you? Through social media, through recording. I mean, so that's if you know
2: if you're not an old bird like me and you know how to get on social media. That's fine, but see, I need like my grandkids to help me do that kind of stuff but we all do (laughs) to to the beginning of your question which was about COVID. i was very very ill when i had the virus oh so you had it yeah it it was miserable and i i really thought i was dying and the worst part of all of it was the fever i mean the uh the headache was, that was how it started. I had this massive headache that I've never had a headache like that before in my life. And then after that came all the stomach issues and couldn't eat, couldn't drink, couldn't do anything. And then to have that fever and the fever was so high at one point that I was hallucinating, you know, that oh. I really, thought that it was over, you know but God is good and I made it through all of that and I've gotten my first vaccine. So I get the second one on the 25th of this month. And I think that everything is going, it's gonna take some time for things to do the full circle and come back around, but it is going to happen. But the main thing that the musicians need is work, you know. Because yeah, okay. when we work, we're okay, you know, because that's what we live for, is to make other people smile and happy. And, you know, I was watching a thing on TV the other night that came on and they were talking about uh, these different, because it's like Women's Month, you know, or- History Month. History Month. That's, you're and, part of the
0: Women's History Month series on my show. Oh, what? Well, thank yeah, you. That's why I'm
2: interviewing you right now. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Uh, and And the thing, this one actress, she said, The thing that keeps me going and made me do what I wanted to do was just knowing that I had to become more than just a one-time hit. I had to be a triple threat. And I felt like, okay, well, I can dance, I can sing, I can, you know, I can act. I can, so I guess I'm kind of a triple threat. But my whole thing about all of it was that growing up as a young Black child, And people saying to you that you weren't going to be anything, you know, because of just the one thing, the color of your skin. Mm -hmm. You know, but I tried my hardest to make sure that that didn't come true.
0: Do you know know that your father, um, I'm sure you've heard this, but it was something I learned from him early on. I think, actually, when I first met him, uh, not too long after I first met him at the Jew Drop, he he said that um, when he was in high school, um, he wanted to be a nuclear scientist. And he said that to his teachers, and they said, nope, that ain't going to happen.
2: You know, and I did. You knew that, right? Yes, I did know that. And I'm going to tell you, I was in school, and I'll never forget this, as long as I live. And it also happened to my children. Something happened to my children. I'll tell you about that. Uh, I said to one of my teachers that I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to be a doctor. And she said to me, no, you can't do that. I said, why can't I do that? She said, because there may be one or two Black doctors. And she didn't say black. I'm not going to say what she said. But I never forgot how mean she was and how nasty she was to me. And how that made me feel like, yeah, well, I'm going to show you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, we, we went through so many things throughout our lives of people just demeaning us and pushing us down and making like we were nothing but Deep down inside, I always knew that I was going to be somebody. I didn't know who I was going to be. I was going to make something happen, you know. And I'll never forget a teacher saying to me one time, my kids went to, they were going to preschool. And she said to me, well, how is it that these kids already know how to add, subtract, and multiply, and they can read? I said, well, what do you think it is? She said, well, I don't understand how you people. And I was like, oh my. Oh no, no. I said, miss, we play dominoes every night. We read every night. She said, but they're not of age to be able to read. I said, who are you to say that? You know, so it's like, it never ends. They always want to make you feel like you're less than they are. They're greater than you. Nobody is greater than anybody. I'm sorry, you know. You know,
0: it reminds me of a story that is a different kind of story, but um, I was always a big talker, as you can imagine. And, um,
2: <laughs> yes, I did.
0: <laughs> in kindergarten, uh, my teacher used to put my chair next to her desk because mm-hmm. she had to shut me up. And um, in first grade, um, I kind of um, shouted out, They were doing a little experiment on the blackboard and this kid was putting fish on a line and the line drops. And I thought it was hilarious. So I said, oh, do it again, Hank. Class breaks up. She was a sub teacher. (laughs) She was humiliated and I got punished by my teacher by setting me, I was a fast reader. She sent me back to the beginning Mm -hmm. with a guy to oversee and listen to me read who I had a crush on. Talk about things you never forget. Oh, never, oh my God, I know. <laughs> right? Because she punished me by where it hurt. Right. With insulting my um, capacity for, and my education and my intelligence. Mm-hmm. Because I shouted out at a kid that he yeah, should. And,
2: you know, it was, it's funny that you even say that because, oh, my gosh. How many classes that, I, I mean, I was always a bookworm always was reading everything, you know. And I'll never forget for my ninth birthday getting the trilogy. And uh, my teacher said to me, you'll never be able to read that. Who do you think you are? And I said, she said, there's too many words in there that you won't understand. And I read the trilogy and The Hobbit. And uh, I went back and she told me to do a book report on the books. And I did. And she looked at it and she put her head down and she said, I'm sorry. And that's all she would say. Mm-hmm. She wouldn't say anything else, but she did say, I'm sorry. Uh, that makes
0: my, that make that gave me uh, the chills on my spine. I don't want to run out of time without um, going back to my uh, final question. And that is, how do you see us coming out of this COVID? Uh, what is our future? in our culture, in our music, in our lives in New Orleans. And and what do you feel? Because ultimately we're working on a study of how should we better invest it? And you said gigs, but tell me more about it. <laughs> well, that. I
2: mean, you know, that's just being a musician saying that, but I do feel that we are going to, there's a great future for us, not just as New Orleanians, but just as human beings, and that it doesn't matter who we are or where we come from, that once this is behind us, and to think of the fact that, you know, we've lived to see something like this a pandemic, you know, I mean, I've read about different ones, but I think that we will definitely be able to open doors for the future for people coming behind us, you know, and lessons that we've learned from this are going to change the lives of the people that are going to come next, you know? So I think that we're going to make it. I think we're going to be okay. It's going to take a, t- a little while now. It's not going to be like tomorrow. Everything's going to be ooh, rainbows and stars and all of that kind of carrying on and stuff, you know, but we'll make it. And I think that I have faith and my faith is in humanity it's in my brothers and my sisters. And you one of my sisters, my sister from another mother. you yeah. know. Yeah. And I think that we will make it because we have strength and we have respect for each other. And we have, you know, this, this tie, you know, and when I say tie, the tie is through generations, you know, we're tied together through generations, even though sometimes we don't see it. Even the people that nobody's taught to be a racist. I mean, nobody is born a racist. They're taught to be racist. So, you know, and even those people at some point will see that we're all related and you probably have some of me in you. So, you know, don't be so quick to say, oh, I'm pure this. Nobody's pure anything, you know. So I, I do I believe feel- that. I believe yeah.
0: that. It's I like my that. husband. Um, you know, my husband has what they call the Neanderthal brow, uh-huh. so he 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 claims his his Neanderthal heritage. We all have some of it. We yes. all have some genes, but he mm-hmm. believes that he has a little bit more. And so, he wasn't insulted. He's not the kind to get insulted. Right. But he basically, when when Biden recently said those, you know, the bad governors who were saying no masks were neanderthals he took exception to that and generally speaking, right. we, we, we underplay our past but here's the other thing i i, I want to say that i often observe and i say that the past is not past in new orleans
2: that's right that is so right you know it is a part and of we, us every we, day we have, we have a great future ahead of us you know and We're gonna make it, we're gonna make it through all of this, you know, and we're gonna lead the way for the next group of people, the next generation, you know, like we stood on someone's shoulders to get where we are. There's gonna be people who are gonna stand on our shoulders to get where they're going, you know? And the only thing that we can look behind us for is for someone to grab by the hand and pull them forward with us, you know? I mean, history is there, it's there, we can't change it, so. All we have to do is just look forward to the future and make sure that we bring everybody with us, you know, everybody.
0: Speaking of the fo- of the future, um, uh, since this will air, I-, I don't know if it's gonna air this week or next week, I'm not sure, but when is your next performances? Do you know?
2: Oh, yes, actually, I have a performance coming up, like I was talking to you about the PRISM project that I'm doing, uh, actually, Um, I'm going into the studio with the kids with autism and we're doing this song and we're going to shoot a video at Armstrong Park. I think that's on Saturday, March the 20th or something like that. And then March 13th is when we're actually doing the uh, recording of the uh, song. And the PRISM project is something that's so phenomenal. These kids, oh my God, You know, it's just phenomenal to see these kids. And a lot of times, a lady said to me a long time ago, she said, you came into the school and you picked out these children. She said, and you picked out children that it seemed like you knew that they had something else going on. And I said, yes, ma'am, I did. I said, but the reason I picked them out is because I'm not going to make you feel inferior about anything that's wrong. You know, cause a lot of times people feel like, oh, well he's special, he's this, she's that. No, if you speed them, you know, just treat them as if they're just normal kids, you have nothing to worry about. And so this little boy took the microphone, I handed it to him and she told me, I'll never forget the woman saying to me and the teacher as well. He's in a wheelchair, he never gets out of the wheelchair, he never talks, he never sings, he never even looks at people. I handed that little boy that microphone. He stood up out of that wheelchair and he sang with a voice that was like Jim Nabors, you oh know, God. one of those strong. And song. everybody started crying. The teachers cried. The children cried. The mother cried. The father cried. They said, "Well, how did you do it?" I said, "I didn't do anything. All I did was treat him like he was normal, because that's what he is—normal." You know, and that's the thing that. We'll never stop, you know, but the Prism Project is going to be great. And then I'm doing a show on my birthday, on March 31st for the Jazz Museum at the actual Jazz Museum in the Mint uh, with a group of musicians that I've put together. I mean, some of my normal musicians, but a few different ones too. And we're going to be at the museum. And I just can't wait just to work, you know, I mean, we just played the other day at Snug Harbor for the first That's time yeah. over a year and it yeah. felt so good, oh, but God. I was so nervous. I forgot the words to one of the songs and, you know, and it was weird because, you know, just, I hate cameras. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually literally hate cameras and hmm. of course cameras are everywhere and there's no crowd. So it was weird, but oh, you know, yeah. we yeah. made it and it was fine and it was just good to be playing again and to be in Snug Harbor and I love that place and to be with my guys you know and, and I, have I hope say, your Mondays there uh, begin again soon yes and I miss so much my little drummer who passed away yeah. Raymond Webber-Jun, we called him Ray Ray he was only 25 and he played with me for so many years and I remember when I first met him he was just the cutest little thing and he said I want to play with you one day <laughs> and, and his father was Drummer, and so eventually he ended up playing with me. So, you know, but, so that yeah.
0: he's gone. Um, all right, now, uh, Charmaine, I am going to um, catch up with you on the details on these uh, performances and the video, and include them in the newsletter. Thank you, Charmaine, right. so much. Love you. <laughs> Love you too. Take
2: care. Bye bye. So. In a morning sunrise, light that gives you glory will surely take it all away. Well flaming with all the gloves on right eyes, burning, kisses stealing, breaking into a newborn day for the passion. Killer, and let you fall to hell So ends each story very softly As in the morning a sunrise And light that gives you glory We'll surely take it all away. Square do it bad do it, spread it,
1: spread it.
0: We are still in Women's History Month, and I'm continuing uh, our series on um, women in history, both sung and unsung. And um, I'm here uh, today with uh, Chaya Conrad, who is kind of both sung and unsung. So um, those who know her and go to the Bywater Bakery, um, on Dauphine and Cross Street. Independence, Independence. Independence in the Bywater um, uh, revere her for two reasons. One, she makes absolutely ridiculously delicious things. We love her husband too because he's, he's just a, a, a wonderful guy as well, Alton. And um, and because she's such a lovely person, and she she's kind of like the matre D at, at um, or the, uh, I should say the owner at um, oh and now I'm forgetting that really famous New York restaurant where you know there's they so elegantly greet you. So she always greets her her friends, her customers. And I, I love that. I, I get a kick out of that. I think that personal thing is just so important. She's actually also the founder of the um, what do you call it cake, Chantilly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Chantilly cake. She's a she's a designer of it, and um, but she's gone way past that um, in her bakery. So um, let let's talk about how you got. St- I think baking and cooking for other people. Oh my God, I can't even begin to imagine it. It just seems like so much work. <laughs> I don't know what time you get how up in the fun. morning and what time you go to bed, but it just seems like a ton of work. And I know you all love your what you do, so I, I want to hear kind of how you got started. Let's, let's go to the beginning. And uh, um,
1: Yeah, I started, um, well, I started out as a latchkey kid who was always baking for myself and cooking for myself at home after school. And um, when I was 14, I got my first job in a bakery uh I lied about my age to get the job it was uh in Vermont uh Genois pastry shop and I uh, made fruit tarts and base iced cakes um and so that was my first experience it was really just such a wonderful peaceful place um my memories are so fond of it but it just got me loving baking so that's, you had that's been, I started you had, to,
0: you had to have been doing it before that oh, yeah. otherwise you wouldn't have you know, even thought about going to a bakery and, 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 and saying, yeah, I mean,
1: I like so many young, young people, I started out with an easy bake oven. <laughs> I mean, I started baking when I was a little girl. I always loved baking. Wow. And as soon as I could get a job in a bakery, I just thought I was hot stuff.
0: probably were. No, ironically, I just want to share with you. I think I mentioned this to you that I still, I order, um, uh, a pastry called rugula which is a traditional I think German and Jewish um, uh, form of I don't know if you want to call that pastry I don't know what you call that but from Ma- mother Myrick's bakery in Vermont mm-hmm. so um, it, it's interesting I have absolutely no idea why Vermont has a big role in both of our lives because um, <laughs> rugulas are a big thing in my life because they make this with a lot of nut and fruit that's i I sort of pretend it's healthy so um and then you make and then i just recently discovered that you make great ones too and of course i'm totally addicted to another german jewish pastry called um you know actually this might be really more jewish than german because the the story of it is so interesting it has something to do with a turkish Um, leader who was persecuting Jews. And um, so it's named after him, Haman. It was his Mm -hmm. name, Haman Tashin. And I don't remember what Tashin means, but I assume it means, you know, get out of the way from (laughs) from us uh, and and, uh, stop doing what you're doing, the terrible things you're doing. I think he was trying to do another one of those things like the Egyptian thing that led to the tradition of matzahs, which was, you know, killing babies. So Mm
1: -hmm.
0: um, anyway, those are just a couple of things you do. But you you do um, now in your, your bakery a lot of cooking. And I've been picking up food from you uh, for dinner. Your lasagna is fabulous. Your quiches are fabulous. It's
1: Chicken just pop pies so- are popular. Yeah, we started doing like take uh, family meals to take home during COVID. That's um, when it started. I was trying to remember yeah. if you were doing that before. Yeah. So are you going to continue to do that? Oh yeah, definitely.
0: So it this will. is what we call in the COVID days a pivot. Yep. A creative pivot because you are we had, uh,
1: many <laughs> we had so many pivots. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know. Well, uh, they're they're fascinating because some of them are in, in, remarkably successful, as I think yours is. Because I, every time I come to get something, there's a line, um, and um, and and other for others, it, it's been you know a, a, a really deep challenge. And and who pivots well and who pivots not so well, I don't know. Yeah. I think to some extent it 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 reflects on the the integrity of what you were already doing. So so let's make the connection between your pivot and what you were doing.
1: Mm-hmm. So um, I mean, we always wanted to be a community place. That that's. I left a very corporate job, and I wanted to come and open up a community bakery. That's that's what the goal was, um, and so we definitely achieved that beforehand, you know, before COVID. Um, but I think it came on even stronger after COVID. You know, we have just we've done a lot. We've anything that we can do for the community during this time, we do. Um, so. I think that it's really um we've just expanded on who we already were.
0: So, so you were already doing these fairly legendary monogras events mm-hmm. and so let's talk about that for a minute and then you just recently did some kind of an event I missed it I don't remember exactly what it was and when and you'll tell me but um uh, again in the spirit of community you kind of um stage celebrations in the streets around your Shop as a, a way again of welcoming people. So, for Mardi Gras,
1: it's always some kind of food tradition associated with it, right? Because um, that's who we are and that's what we do. Um, but we do love having we love having events. My husband knows everybody in town, and he loves music, and you know he loves bringing in musicians to the to the bakery, and and from there we get to just have a whole lot of fun. Um, we have an event coming up. Starting tomorrow, but Friday is the St. We're doing a St. Joseph's Day altar, so that's really exciting. I'm actually—it's my day off, but I'm at the bakery here doing a bunch of baking for the altar because um, it's—it's a lot of fun. This is our first year doing an altar at the bakery, and um, I've done them before, but this is our first year doing it here. It feels super appropriate given, you know, everything that we as a community have gone through and how much support we've received from the community it just feels great to build this altar and then we'll break it down on friday at six o'clock and feed everyone and it's going to be great
0: so you are actually going to um do that on friday and our show airs on friday so that's Mm -hmm. when uh the newsletter comes out thursday so we'll get the word out um a little bit in advance but uh it'll air the same day so just to be clear for people who are seeing this hearing this rather yes so today's the day (laughs) <laughs> so so tell me uh let's go back for a minute to the mardi gras event because i've been to a couple of those and that's you know that's that's a big thing that's not just a little thing that's you know you know.
1: it's the launch of king cakes it's also our anniversary our birth our birthday at the bakery we opened our doors on on um uh 12th night so we always make a big celebration it's our birthday celebration but also it's the launch of king cakes and Um, we celebrate all the things that make this, this city wonderful that day.
0: You like me, um, fall into the category of a reformed Yankee. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) You're, you're from Yankee land. So how did you, um, what was it like when you had to kind of segue from what you were familiar with as baking traditions and New Orleans baking traditions? I mean, we got some very distinct traditions here. The king cake is one of them, but not the only one. So tell me about so how-
1: In a sense, I kind of was raised with the food traditions here more than anything because I came down here when I was 18. You know, oh. I had the love of baking, but I wasn't, I was still developing myself as, as a baker. You know, so when I came down here, really, I, I I learned baking here more than anything. So full up in the in the traditions here. Um, yeah, I think I'd uh, I'd have a hard time going back up north and baking. <laughs> it wouldn't translate as well.
0: I don't know. I mean, I think everybody uh, in the world practically loves our traditions here in new orleans and so i mean they they travel and um uh, uh you, you, they, they're not they don't necessarily travel that well so you don't want to order blackened um redfish in new york i think mm-hmm. <laughs> <that
1: one. laughs> so um you know they try they do you know, people you do, do order king cakes from everywhere that that they do everybody loves a king cake right oh mm-hmm. how many king cakes do you ship out uh, this was our first year shipping, and we shipped out 3,000 king cakes. What? Mm-hmm. Get out. Oh, yeah, my God. And, and
0: how many did you make and sell in New Orleans in addition to that?
1: Uh, well, total between with both of them, it was 18,000. So we made 15,000 locally. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, it was a lot of king cake. <laughs> so, sorry, king cake in every corner. So you wind up um, actually
0: also um, providing jobs for quite a few people because that's a lot of work, right?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, during king cake season this year, we had 21 people working for us. That's seasonal, some of that seasonal work though. So, you know, we've got about 16 right now.
0: That's also still a lot of people for yeah. us agree yeah. yeah so so let's uh, let's do the menu just for a minute let's let's do mm-hmm. some of the uh, specials that you serve on a regular basis that people can get if they come down to the corner of dauphine and independence in mm-hmm. the bar.
1: so you know we do breakfast and lunch um pretty simple things but really really good quality ingredients you know we use uh we make grits but it's stone crown grits we use Newski's bacon but um, it's uh, like par- breakfast parfaits, they're like uh, in go cups, most mostly, and some sandwiches, pretty simple fare. Of course, we have a, a wide selection of pastries. And you know, we have some things that are staples, but then also there's a lot of room for us to play in there and try and keep it. Uh, you know, seasonal, but also within whatever uh, food tradition is happening in it at the moment. So one of the things I love the most is, is food traditions. And, you know, I am not Italian and I'm not Jewish, I'm not, but I love to celebrate all of those things. So any, anything coming along, I grab onto it and want to bake for it.
0: So, um, you know, there are certain, uh, tra- again, bakery baking traditions in New Orleans and certain traditional bakeries. Mm-hmm. So um, I think of course of Rondazos. I think of, um, uh, you name them for me, because I'm terrible at remembering the and... these ricotta's, mm-hmm. and um, uh, there's a couple more there in the back of my mind that I can't pull from my head. Um, that are, are are traditional. So you, you're sort of taking your place in that pantheon um, of f- sort of famed New Orleans bakeries. Um,
1: and I, I think that that's kind maybe of someday uh, I hope to. <laughs> what? Someday I hope to. We're we're working on it. I, I think that you're uh, well on your way.
0: Is is how I would uh, portray it. But um, how how do you see? There's there's more and more new coffee shops and bakeries in the city. So with those those traditional uh, bakeries that I was trying to remember all the names, um, Haydell's, that was one of the ones I was trying to think of. Um, uh, there are the newbies, the new bakeries that are opening. And so I feel like the tradition is, oh, of course, you know, Boulangerie has been around for a long time, but it was a newbie when it first arrived on the scene in the seventies, like me. And, um, uh, so I, I have this sense that, you know, things change. They go on. There's a couple of bakeries that came in are are, are gone. She's just, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, I know you're closed. This is your day that you're closed though, right? Yeah. yeah. So uh, I have a team of people, people
1: to- coming in to help you bake for the altar. So
0: just community members. We're going to come back to the altar in a minute too. So um, h- how do you see the as you say, the food traditions, the, the baking traditions of the city going forward. As we emerge, especially out of COVID, um, What are you, what is your vision? What are you seeing coming? Um, how, how are you uh, thinking
1: about the, the post-COVID phase in the future? Um, well, I mean, we are kind of a mixture of, of traditional and newbie stuff, right? That's, uh, I want to, pay homage to to our history and our food culture in New Orleans, but also have the flexibility to do fun, new things, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and that, so we kind of position ourselves in the middle of all of that. There's, there's room for everybody. Um, there are going to be the, you know, artisan kind of trendy bakeries that, um, there's going to be more of those people come, you know, we've got a lot of transplants and also it's popular right now. And that's great. Um, but there's also, you know, a lot of room for the traditional and people want to pay homage to that, too. So I think there's room for everybody. And I try and position myself in the middle.
0: So you're 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 doing both um, representing the traditions, but also innovating, and I think that's that's kind of that's a, a, in a sense that is really the 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 key to our culture in the city because a lot of people think of New Orleans as being you know trad jazz and that's all they know about it, but really when you just um, uh, just a little bit under the surface and you find all the different music forms that have evolved here over the years with the most recent being, I guess, Sissy Bounce. Although there's probably something bubbling up out, out there that I don't even know about because I'm not out at night much anymore. So um, who knows? Um, but, oh yeah, I mean, there are sort of, we have our TikTok stars coming out of the city as well. So uh, and we know that they're part of that, that whole uh, trend. Actually, that would be sort of a fun thing, wouldn't it? To do some kind of a... Um... <laughs> Um, By Water Bakery TikTok. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> <Some thought
1: child. laughs> All right.
0: Um, so, I um, want to hear more about the St. Joseph's altar since that is uh, upon us.
1: Mm-hmm. So, um, today we're going to be making St. Lucia tarts. So, that's really fun. Um, it's a fig what tart. Say that again. Size tarts. The St. Oh, tarts.
0: tarts. Mm-hmm.
1: So, it's a fig tart. Um, so we're making those and we're gonna be baking some more cakes and um, just doing a bunch of stuff to, To we do it for us and we do it for the Catholic Church down the street also. So, you know. Um, Where's
0: gonna be, right, right inside the uh, bakery or outside? Yeah, or? right
1: inside. It's our first foray into letting people in the bakery. Uh-huh. So gotta be masked and only a couple people at a time, but we're gonna let everybody in. Um, and we've got a dear friend of mine, Gina Montabano. She's gonna be um, cooking up, she's Sicilian, classic New Orleans Sicilian, and she's cooking up a huge feast. Um, So there'll be items for sale that she's making. And then uh, at six o'clock, we have Mardi Gras Indians coming because St. Joseph's Day is also a big, big uh, holiday for the Mardi Gras Indians. We've got a brass band and we're gonna break down the altar and have a big celebration.
0: A lot of people do St. Joseph altars and it is a lot of work again, so. Um, give me the, the background
1: on it again. I'm I'm forgetting the story. So um, it is a Sicilian tradition um, when there was a famine, the uh, everybody was able to eat fava beans. Wait, hey, wait, I got an expert right here. <laughs> fava beans uh, were the one crop that did not uh, get get uh, you know demolished during that time frame. So that was the one thing everybody could eat. And as they came out of the famine, um, they Held this huge feast uh, in Saint Joseph's honor to pay homage to, to, pay, the people. to, to pay homage and, and feed the people. So
0: this has been um, Chaya Conrad, um, as I said in the beginning, reformed Yankee,
1: <laughs> uh,
0: now a, um, a part of the pantheon of important food uh, providers and um, nurturing. Person in the city of New Orleans, and um, I'm thrilled to know you. Um, thank you thank so you, much Jean. for Glad being be who you, you are sir. and doing what you do. And um, I'll see you probably in the next couple of days. All right, we'll see you Friday. Okay, which is today for those of you listening. <laughs> Friday from 11 to 7. Yep. Thank you. That's Women's History for this week. So this is Jean Nathan for Crossdown Conversations. Thank you for listening.